We'll hear argument first this morning in number 91794, Henry Harper versus Virginia Department of Taxation. Mr. Cater. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case arises as the sequel to Davis versus (coughs) Michigan Department of the Treasury. Petitioners are federal retirees who, relying on Davis, sought refunds of the taxes Virginia (coughs) unconstitutionally imposed on their pension. The court below denied petitioners their refunds, principally holding that Davis was not to be applied retroactively. This case presents the question whether Davis must be applied retroactively, and if so, whether the Department of Taxation must refund petitioners the taxes unconstitutionally imposed upon them. In reaching its conclusion to apply Davis non-retroactively, the court below relied <coughs> on its application of Chevron Oil versus Houston. Well, we submit that the lower court's Chevron analysis is flawed in every respect. More fundamentally, we submit that the court below erred in even reaching Chevron. Foremost, retroactivity of Davis is compelled by this court's decision in Beam versus Georgia. In Beam, this court rejected modified or selective prospectivity in the civil arena. It held that if this court applies its rule to the parties before it in one case, all other courts must must similarly apply that rule to litigants before them. Thus, for choice of law purposes, the dispositive question here is whether the court applied its ruling to the parties in Davis. On this point, there can be no real dispute. As a result of this court's holding, Michigan paid and Paul Davis received a refund of the taxes unconstitutionally imposed on his pension. It's not important how or why this court reached that determination. It matters only under Beam that it did. Accordingly, under Beam, the court below was required to apply (coughs) Davis retroactively. The second point that we raise is our our statutory point. What the Department of Taxation is asking the court to do in this case is something it has never done before. It is asking the court to use Chevron to ignore the plain, unambiguous terms of a lawfully enacted uh, act of Congress. This is... This is not anything that that any of the authorities that the uh, Department of Taxation has cited in its brief suggests that this court has ever done. And admitted, it would seem to me that there is uh, no precedent which would support it. In enacting the Public Salary Tax Act in 1939, Congress said taxes imposed after December 31, 1938 must be non-discriminatory. Fifty years later, Virginia says, no, that statute should go into effect December 31, 1988. This court cannot accept Virginia's equitable plea to say it's going to be be very burdensome for us to comply with the statute. Congress has spoken, and that, according to this court's precedent, is the end of the matter. In our briefs, we speak in great detail about the Chevron analysis. We address the bounds and propriety of pure prospectivity, and we address the application of Chevron to the facts of this case. As this court has most recently applied Chevron, it could not reach a case such as this, a case against a governmental entity where there is no contention that past precedent of this court has been overruled, and where there is no suggestion that this court has answered a novel question of law in a revolutionary manner. 
application of Chevron, in any event, yields ret retroactive application of Davis, as each element of that analysis favors retroactivity. For these reasons as well, the court below erred in holding that Davis was non-retroactive. What I think is, is the tricky issue in this case is not so much the choice of law issue. The, the more complicated issue is the remedy issue. The court below offered two reasons for denying petitioners refunds. Its first reason was that under Chevron, Davis didn't need to be applied retroactively. And that, I submit, is incorrect. Its second reason was that under its own state law analysis, its own state law retroactivity analysis, Davis would not be applied retroactively. As this court made clear in Ashland Oil and Beam, in the various opinions in the American Trucking Association v. Smith, the question of retroactivity of a, of a decision of this court is a question of federal law, not state law. The Virginia Supreme Court was simply wrong in holding that as a matter of state law, it could deny retroactive effect to Davis. The second thing that the Supreme Court of Virginia did in its second opinion was it suggested that no remedy was required here, even if Davis is retroactive, because it can continue to consider the remedial or the equitable considerations of Chevron in the remedial calculus. It can say, even if the law is unconstitutional, the statute is unconstitutional as declared by Davis, nonetheless, it can deny relief. Well, certainly, the state can, in a tax case, the state can require a claimant to go through the procedures required of other claimants for tax refunds, can it not? Certainly, a state can structure its tax refund statute in a way that provides it protection, certainly. That's not what we have here in this case. The bottom line, as McKesson makes clear, is a clear and certain remedy for the unlawful deprivation of property. That's what we had in this case. Virginia seems to suggest that McKesson only applies in a situation where it's foreseeable at the time that the statute was enacted that the statute would be challenged and likely invalidated. And I submit that McKesson cannot be so limited. McKesson speaks in terms of constitutional due process. The due process clause doesn't say due process may not be taken in bad faith without due process of law. It says property may not be taken without due process of law. Their reading of McKesson is far too parsimonious. In this case, Virginia must provide a clear and certain remedy. And their statute presumably does so. If it doesn't, then the Constitution requires that a remedy be provided. Well, and I suppose the state can also put a time bar on the remedy, that you must apply for a refund or pay under protest within a certain amount of time, or you can't do it. Certainly. As this Court held in Beam and in McKesson, the states are allowed to erect procedural barriers, procedural protections around them to shield them from liability. And that's what most states have done. They've created a system whereby a statute of limitations, three years, whatever, within which to present claims, and that's the procedure that petitioners have followed in this case. What are the limits in Virginia 
the statute of limitations or the time requirements on a tax claim? In an ordinary case, it would be three years as a general rule. It's three years or, I believe, 60 days after your federal return is corrected on a, on a, in a federal claim. It piggybacks it in that sense. In this particular case, uh, shortly after Davis was decided by this court, the Virginia legislature met and amended its refund statute for the explicit purpose of allowing federal, the, the claim to federal retroactivity of Davis to be resolved. It amended the refund statute to say claims for refunds for Davis-type taxes may be submitted up to a year after final resolution of the retroactivity of Davis. So in Virginia, the door is still open. Like extending it to a year after this court renders a, a decision in well, this case? perhaps this court, perhaps the Supreme Court of Virginia on remand. It's a little unclear, but it's, the door is still open in Virginia. But, but how far back does that go? It, only to 1984 would be the first, I'm sorry, 1985 would be the first tax year at issue and dispute in this case. Most of the petitioners filed their refund claims uh, in March, April of uh, 1989, and that would have entitled them to go back to 1985. So the tax years in dispute are 85, 86, 87, and 88. Virginia didn't impose the tax in 89. I'm, I'm a little puzzled because they make the argument in their brief that as long as you had a prepayment procedure, you don't have to have a postpayment refund claim. That seems a little inconsistent with what you just said. Is it? You think it's perfectly clear as a matter of Virginia law that, that, that have they already decided that there is a remedy in this case? In, in this case, uh, all the court has held is that the reason its refund statute does not apply is because of non-retroactivity of Davis. Right. In its second opinion, it intimated that it could continue to play the, the Chevron game with respect to a remedy. But that's not uh, anything that it, it had done before. Uh, we also challenge the assertion that there's any meaningful pre-deprivation remedy in Virginia. In Virginia, the pre-deprivation remedy is essentially to go to the tax commissioner and say, I don't think I should have to pay these taxes. In order to get judicial review of that determination by the tax commissioner, you must pay the taxes, and you're funneled into the same refund procedure that we followed, the petitioners followed in this case. So. Because this case is a, involves a constitutionality of a Virginia statute, the Virginia Tax Commissioner has no authority to say the tax is unconstitutional to, to absolve petitioners from paying that tax. Therefore, there is no meaningful pre-deprivation remedy. Even, even if he had that authority, uh, uh, does, does Virginia uh, require you to go to the Tax Commissioner in, no. order, in order later to ask for a refund? And that's, that's the second point, Your Honor. Virginia doesn't require that you choose any one particular route. It has various routes. And what, what the argument seems to be is that, well, you had this other route you could have taken, and therefore we can cut off the route that you happen to choose to take. And I submit that that would violate uh, fundamental notions of due process as, as in the Brinkerhoff Ferris. Virginia does not say you must go to the tax commissioner. You can choose not to pay the tax and, and challenge it later. If Ask for a refund later, without having gone to the... You have to pay the tax yes, first. You have yes, you to pay it first. Yes. But uh, I, I, I take it, or, or maybe, that's, uh, maybe it's not correct. Uh, if you apply to the commissioner for a, a prepayment remedy, uh, would that extend the 
period of time in which you have to file your refund because the I, I take it the commissioner can uh, hold your claim in, in abeyance while the commissioner is determining it. And then if the commissioner denies it, I take it the refund um, remedy, uh, the limitation of the refund remedy begins to, re- to, to run from either the denial or the payment. Virginia does have a pr- procedure whereby you can preserve a refund claim in just that manner. But the fact remains that... <clears throat> In terms of getting an an unconstitutional tax refunded, it can't be done unless you go to court. And you can't go to court unless you pay the tax. But there there is a functional difference in the two routes, in that if you apply for the pre-deprivation or for the uh, prepayment determination, it is going to have the effect of extending the period of time in which uh, you have to ultimately file a court action. Yes, it would extend your statute of limitations. It doesn't allow you to go back any further. It would extend the time that you can finally file file suit. But I don't see that that would necessarily reflect on the meaningfulness of the pre-deprivation remedy because the bottom line still remains, unless you go to court, you can't get your money back, and unless you pay your taxes, you can't go to court. And that is what I see as the central component of the pre-deprivation remedy that's required. Mr. Cater, I think you said that the commissioner cannot... uh relieve you of your tax liability on grounds of unconstitutionality. Is that correct? That's correct. You can't forgive it. Can he make a declaration of unconstitutionality and then say, well, I'm terribly sorry, I used, I, I can't let you go, but I, I admit that the tax is unconstitutional? I, I don't. I suspect it's conceivable that he could say, I'm very sympathetic. I think this tax is unconstitutional, but there's nothing I can do about it. I know he no cannot make a declaration of unconstitutionality with any legally operative significance. Is exactly. that what you're saying? Not, not in Virginia, not, <coughs> not in the United States, and not in any jurisdiction that I'm familiar with. Uh, Don't they make another argument? Oh, excuse me. Another argument that there's some sort of an equitable doctrine of repose that the Virginia court can can apply that would be comparable to statute of limitations when they think there's gross unfairness in collecting a tax retroactively. The argument that uh, I understand the Department of Taxation to make is that the, the state has its own retroactivity analysis, the fountain versus fountain. I understood that to go not to the question whether the rule of law is retroactive, but whether there really is a state remedy. That Obviously, it would not be if the statute of limitations had run or if they had said in so many words you must file a pre, you know, a prepayment challenge. But they say there's sort of another thing. I don't know if there's any cases that support it, but but that there's some sort of a, they can create a, a doctrine of repose when they're confronted with this sudden trauma that has uh, well, come over the state. The only authority they cite for that is the, the Fountain case and uh, another one that was cited, uh, decided on or about the same date. And, uh, and those cases are retroactivity cases. And they, the, the department, the attorney general's office briefed Chevron in those cases. And the court came down essentially following a Chevron analysis in, in state uh, law cases and said, this is how we apply it. Uh, I don't understand how uh, Virginia could do that, but that comes back to, my, to the bottom line of our brief, which is, if Virginia doesn't provide a remedy, then the Constitution must, and the 14th Amendment takes over. Petitioners are entitled to a clear and certain remedy for the denial uh, of, their, uh, of their property, for the taking of their property. And... Uh, if Virginia statute doesn't provide it, then the 14th Amendment would. And I, I think that this is an important point 
that comes up not only in this case, but is before this court and several other petitions that are pending. May I just interrupt you right there? Why would it require it if you acknowledge that a statute of limitation would bar it? Anything barred by limitations, the, the federal constitution doesn't trump. Correct. Now, why does the federal constitution necessarily, necessarily trumps this sort of uh, this new equitable doctrine they're coming up with? Well, because if it's new, then there wasn't a clear and certain remedy. I see. You have a Brinkerhoff-Ferris situation where they have undermined your claim, your existing claim. And that's what, obviously, this court cannot say Virginia's refund statute provides X. That's for the Virginia Supreme Court to say. But what this court can say and what we ask it to say is that if Virginia's refund statute doesn't provide a remedy, then the 14th Amendment does. And this is the issue, the Brinkerhoff-Ferris issue that I was mentioning, that's before the court in the Norwest Bank case that's on petition. It is also before the case in, in the court in the Bass case, which is pending. Uh, recently in Georgia, uh, in the, not in the Beam case, but in the federal retirees case, the Supreme Court of Georgia held that, that yes, Davis must be applied retroactively, but uh, its refund statute only applies to illegal taxes collected under a valid statute and not illegal taxes collected under an invalid statute. And therefore, in Georgia, they tell us, notwithstanding what counsel for the attorney uh, for Georgia told this court in Beam, that the only way to recover your taxes in Georgia is to pay them under protest. This is the kind of, of uh, uh, these are the kinds of defenses that are coming up in these cases now, and they're they're before the court. Well, uh, do you do you say that an even-handedly applied uh, requirement that you pay under protest? Uh, in order to recover, is uh, cannot bar recovery. I wouldn't say that it. I wouldn't say that it. Well, yes. What's in, your authority for okay. that? Okay, let me start with a, a case that I'm more familiar with, which is is the Bass case. In Bass, the Supreme Court said, "Yes, you must pay under protest." Well, the pay under protest provision in Bass had previously been a upheld by this court as being not a plain, speedy, and efficient remedy. I would suggest that in that context, you would not have, uh, that would not be an adequate remedy. In, in, as a general rule, yes, that's what McKesson stands for, that you can impose pay under protest. Well, wh why would the general rule, why is the general rule not applicable, could it not be applicable to this situation? It, it could be, Your Honor, if it were imposed in the future, if you try to impose it retroactively, you well, can't. supposing that Virginia had in 1980, say before all of this litigation arose, adopted a rule that in order to ever get a refund from a t for a tax, you have to have paid it under protest, and applied that even-handedly up till now, would would that be an adequate bar to recovery here to someone who would not pay it under protest? I think that that's what McKesson holds, Your Honor. I think it is too, uh, but that's that is not the situation that we have here. As I understand it, you say what the situation here is that you, is that you may go through a protest procedure with the commissioner, but you need not. You, you, you have the option of either using that or else paying the tax and seeking a refund. Yes, as, as is the case with many other states, there are various ways to go about it. Petitioners elected this route. If I may reserve my remaining time. Thank you. Very well, Mr. Cater. Uh, Ms. Marshall, we'll hear from you now. Uh, I think it would be helpful to me and very likely to some of my colleagues if sometime during your argument you would describe to us what the Virginia 
tax recovery pro, uh, provisions are? Let me begin with that. May please, uh, the court and Mr. Chief Justice, thank you. The pre-deprivation remedy that Virginia has is not limited just to the administrative proceeding here, administrative proceeding that admittedly none of these petitioners uh, came forward in. Uh, it is also in involves uh, pre-deprivation possibility of going to court in a declaratory judgment. And actually, the Perkins case, which we cited to this court, is in fact a declaratory judgment case. You say the procedure also involves going to court. No, is that I, an alternative? Yes, you, yes, you can do one or the other, and either one will be sufficient. There are various pre-deprivation remedies. They're set forth in our supplemental appendix. They include not only the administrative procedure, which has been uh, addressed here, to the tax commissioner. And I disagree with what was stated earlier. The tax commissioner can... Uh, exonerate a taxpayer from payment. He may not be able to declare anything unconstitutional, but he certainly can give uh, a taxpayer relief. But, Ms. Ms. Marshall, are they, I, I know they're available, but does the state say you must use those, and unless you use those, you can't come in later, which is what it seems to me it's saying here. These people came in later, and the state is now saying, well, you could have come in earlier, and therefore we don't have to pay you. And they're saying, well, we could have come in later, but you didn't earlier, but you didn't tell us we had to come in earlier. Mr. Did, did the state tell them they Mr. had Justice to come in earlier? Scalia, the state gives them an option under the regulations, okay. which are part of our, of our uh, submission in our brief. The regulations actually uh, encourage people to use the pre-deprivation remedies. What I suggest to this court is that the pre-deprivation remedy or the remedy that this, these petitioners choose, they chose a post-deprivation remedy. When they choose that, with it, which was an option they have, they take that remedy as it is in state law. And that remedy is not a mandatory refund remedy in, in facts of this nature. For two decades, uh, uh, Ms. Marshall, may I interrupt you just a moment before you get into that? I, I just want to go back to something you said before. I guess I have two questions. Uh, the first is with respect to the declaratory uh, judgment remedy. Uh, is that set out as a, uh, a peculiar or particular element of, the, of a tax refund procedure, or is there simply a general statute in Virginia providing for declaratory judgment? There's a general statute, remedies? and it is applied. We do not, in other words, our tax ex uh, exemption or injunction statute does not bar that. Perkins okay. itself, the case that uh, our Supreme Court relied on in forming and in declaring the nature of the refund remedy, which the option uh, that these petitioners took, uh, relied on the Perkins case, and it itself was a declaratory judgment action. Okay, thank you. Now, my second question goes, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to, to your statement that the commissioner could forgive the tax uh, but could not declare it unconstitutional. Well, whether he could or not, that hasn't been litigated in Virginia. But the point is whether the, these petitioners could have gotten relief, and they certainly could have gotten relief. He has the authority to exonerate the taxpayer and the uh, limitations of the kinds of uh, reasons you can argue to the commissioner is unlimited. Well, it may be, it, and, and I, I, you know, I certainly will accept your answer on that point, but isn't it clear that unless he is able to declare the tax unconstitutional, he could not, as you put it, exonerate them uh, on the kind of claim that we have before us here? No, I disagree. The uh, regulations and the statute, it's 18, uh, Section 1821 of, of uh, the code, specifically uh, state that he can compromise the claim, he can uh, 
uh, foreclose or not have any collection action or assessment Well, action. I'm sure he has that general power, but isn't it equally clear that he could not uh, legally use that power without stating a legally sufficient reason? In fact, we've been saying unconstitutional. I guess it's really a supremacy clause issue here. And, and uh, if, if there's a difference, uh, unless he could say, yes, under the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution, I may not collect this tax given the federal statute, then he couldn't exonerate the taxpayer in this case. Well, I mean, he's, he's subject, of course, to writs of prohibition and mandamus for arbitrary actions. But, and, and certainly he is presumed to act in, uh, presumptively to act in good faith reliance on what a reasonable interpretation of the law is. But he does have the authority to exonerate. If the petitioner, for example, had done that and had lost that case, he could have then have brought it to a judicial body, a declaratory judgment. But would he, well, if he had gone to the commissioner first, not declaratory judgment first, but if he had gone to the commissioner first, mm-hmm. could he then have sought judicial review without payment of the tax? As a declaratory judgment. That's correct. That's correct. Um, may, may I ask, though, uh, do yes. you have any authorities in your brief, brief for the proposition that failure to pursue the prepayment remedy bars an otherwise available postpayment refund remedy? Uh, Your Honor, that case has never come before the court. This is the first case. That's, and that's, my, my second no, well, question. Well, I'm sorry. Could I? Could well, I'm I, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I wanted to, wanted to say that the question of what would have occurred had they taken any of these other remedies has not been litigated in the Virginia well, I court. I'm assuming that I, I'm accepting your statement. They could have won if they'd done it that way. But the question I have is, even so, is there anything saying their failure to do it that way bars their post refund? I suggest, Your Honor, that Perkins and Capehart, the two cases uh, in the 1970s, give notice to the petitioners that if they choose this particular remedy, uh, which is one of several available remedies, it comes with that limitation, the limitation which has been engrafted on the law by our uh, Supreme Court two decades ago. And I suggest that is no With the limitation, well, I'm not sure. I, that if they choose the post-refund remedy, it comes with what limitation? It comes with the statutory interpretation by the Virginia Supreme Court in Perkins and Capehart that in cases where there is reliance by all parties on the law and there would be a failure of the administration of justice for that to be overturned, that the remedy of refund is not not mandatory. The 1826, the part of our code, 1826, is not Then my second question is, at what stage of this litigation did you first advance this defense? At At the trial court. You are, and, the, and you have argued all the way through that there's no remedy here. We've argued all the way through. Yes, Your Honor. And the, why has not the Virginia Supreme Court addressed that question before? Well, uh, Your Honor, I believe that there are two things that the Virginia Supreme Court did address, and there are various lens that this court can look at the case. If I may suggest, for example, this court could find that Davis is prospective. Uh, and if it finds that for whatever reason, this case is over because there are no other legal issues for the court to address. If, however, this court finds that it is not prospective, we submit that you could still and should still uh, affirm the decision of the Virginia Supreme Court below because the Virginia Supreme Court not only determined under Chevron that it was prospective and therefore not an erroneous and or improper exaction of tax, which is what 1826 requires. But it also had another uh, uh, leg to its, uh, to its opinion, in which it said that under 1826 and under our precedents, Perkins and Capehart, 
We look in those cases to the reliance of the parties and the factors of the administration of justice in determining whether or not our particular statutory state remedy encompasses the facts that you petitioners have chosen to bring before us and that you have cho- the route you have chosen to take. Ms. Marshall, did, uh, did Perkins and Capehart make clear, and did you argue in this case at the trial court, that the rule is different for post-payment remedies than it is for the declaratory judgment remedy? I mean, if I read Perkins and Capehart, I, I would think that that applies to all remedies from the Virginia Supreme Court for taxes, whether you do it before or after. You're arguing now, though, a very sophisticated and subtle uh, distinction between uh, uh, post-payment remedies and prepayment remedies. Is that clear in Perkins and Capehart? That had you come earlier, we wouldn't, we wouldn't play this equitable game. Well, let me as it is, you've come late, and, and we have a different rule for post-payment cases. Is, let is me that clear? suggest, Your Honor, that I believe it is clearly derived from Perkins. Perkins uh, was a prepayment case. It was a declaratory judgment. And it received the relief of the court from what was determined to be an erroneous assessment methodology used by widespread, similar here, where this is used in 23 states that was used in many counties. Capehart came later. Capehart paid the tax and then asked for the refund. And Capehart's refund claim was, was denied. So I suggest that the prepayment, postpayment is really intrinsically in those two cases. But whether you say, have we litigated a lot of cases in that area, no, Your Honor, we have not. But I suggest to Your Honor, for several reasons, that whether you find Davis to be retroactive or not, the Supreme Court of Virginia should be affirmed, because what Virginia has done in the second part of its opinion, it is it looked to its state law remedy, and it has defined the scope, even-handedly and based on precedent that's two decades old. It's defined the scope of that remedy. And only, I would suggest, if this court finds that there is not, as we argue there is, a procedural bar to these further federal constitutional questions, such as due process, only if you find that that procedural bar does not exist uh, in this case, would you be uh, correct in remanding this for the court below to consider those uh, due process issues. The petitioners have argued that the due process issues uh, were argued to the Virginia Supreme Court in their reply brief. Uh, at the Supreme Court stage, but we argue there is a state procedural bar, and certainly uh, putting it in your reply brief uh, is not a proper way of preserving the point. The assignments of error under Virginia law clearly state what what issues are waived and which ones are not waived. Uh, Speaking of McKesson, I'd like to mention also that in McKesson, not only did they violate clearly established law at the time of the enactment and the collection of the tax, But they protested the tax uh, ahead of time, as these people had the option to do, not the requirement to do, but the option to do. These people never came forward and raised their hands. Also in McKesson, their complaint was based on two alternative grounds or theories of recovery, state law refund and directly on the Constitution. That is not the case here. These petitioners have chosen to put all of their eggs into one basket, and that is into the basket of the State Refund Act. And we submit that that state uh, remedy simply does not exist for them uh, on the facts of this case. Ms. Marshall, you've made a statement that, that I don't understand. Why have they placed all their eggs in the basket of the state refund remedy? When you look at their complaints, which we reproduced in, their, uh, in the appendix, 
The only use they make of Section 111 or the federal law is to establish or try to bootstrap themselves into the state refund statute. In other words, they did not bring a claim on the 14th Amendment. They did not bring a claim on due process. There is no federal grounded claim that they have brought in their complaint. Moreover, when they Do they have such a claim until you deny their request for compensation? Well, in McKesson, McKesson brought its claim both on federal grounds and on state grounds. And they suggest here that, and even in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of Virginia, uh, the assignments of error decide what, what, what is waived and what is put forward. And yet in the assignments of error, they make no claim of con- unconstitutionality or due process problems with the remedial. I mean, I assume that there's, there, there, there is no federal constitutional remedy if the state provides an adequate refund remedy. So if their request for refund was granted, as they asked it to be, there would have been no constitutional claim. But, Your Honor, when they brought the claim, they surely knew of, of Perkins and Capehart. They knew it was not a mandatory remedy and that it had certain limitations, which we do suggest are similar to the policies behind the statute of limitations and repose, to protect the reliance interest. And if there's anything this case really is about, it is about settled expectations and reliance interest. Seems to me that's like saying a, a, a capital a, a capital defendant who uh, who pursues an appeal to the state supreme court and and uh, is denied the basis of his appeal cannot then come to this court saying that that denial was a violation of the federal constitution unless he has before the state court anticipated the denial and argued that the denial would be a violation of the federal constitution. Well, I'm not sure that that's true. Of course, Your Honor, when this this case came to the Virginia Supreme Court, the claim had been denied. The Commonwealth was granted summary judgment by the trial court. If there was any question at that time that Virginia's procedural scheme had any fe- further federal constitutional grounds, then certainly at that time it should have been presented to no, the Virginia Supreme Court. No, but the Supreme state court. Supreme Court didn't deny it on the ground there was no remedy. It denied it because they thought there was no merit to the claim. They thought the rule was not retroactive. Again, Your but, Honor. But they have never said that if the rule is retroactive, you don't have a remedy. At least they haven't said it up to now. Your Honor, that is a possible way of reading the case below. I believe another way of reading it is that it had an independent ground, which said regardless of the federal uh, retroactivity, we have to look at how our state statute and remedy that these petitioners have chosen to pursue is written and how it should uh, and how it's been applied in our courts. Now, if there is a feeling on this court that that is not clear in the decision below, it would certainly be an appropriate uh, disposition to remand it for a, a, a consideration by the Virginia Supreme Court. The Virginia Supreme Court, in my view, had two grounds for its state law rule. One is a, it was dependent on federal law. That said, it followed. If it's not retroactive, it's not erroneous. But they went on to say there are other reasons why, uh, citing these 1971 cases, why our, the particular remedy you've chosen simply is not one that is available uh, to you on these facts. Uh, Ms. Marshall, before we get away from the point, in, in case it should make a difference to me later, can you tell me uh, when the first, when the point was, either as a matter of pleading or briefing, when your, when the claimants here first mentioned the 14th Amendment as a basis for, for their claim? Uh, I believe it was in the, it was in this court. They state in their brief in this court that, well, if the, if the statute does not uh, give us the, the refund statute does not give us relief. We have relief directly under the 14th okay. Amendment. And if you look at the assignments of error, it's very clear there were two issues they presented to the Virginia Supreme Court. 
your statute clearly on its face requires that you give us a refund, and uh, you have wrongly applied Chevron below. Those were the two issues uh, that were presented. I would like to suggest that um, it's very important for the court, whatever lens it sees this uh, case through, to focus on and to look at the reliance interest and the settled expectations of the parties. It's also important to look at the nature of the harm alleged. What is it that Virginia is supposed to have done uh, that was offensive to federal law? This is not a case, we suggest, where there was any overreaching. Virginia was not pushing the envelope in any way of, of valid taxation. Turned out that it was in fatal collision unknown to it and unknown to these petitioners who never came forward and raised their hands and said there was a problem until after this court's decision in March of 1989. But it was certainly reasonable, both for the petitioners and the 23 states who have, as you know, a massive refund liability on this case of approximately $1.8 billion. It was reasonable for those states to believe that they had a legitimate purpose to to give benefits to their own former state retirees, former state employees. This was a legitimate purpose, and the fact that they had done it through an indirect benefit of taxes rather than through a direct cash benefit did not appear, and reasonably so, to be of any legal significance. What Virginia did was it exempted its state retirees. There were approximately 60,000 of those today. Then it taxed the entire individual taxpaying public, identically, $2.56 million. Fewer than 10% of that are represented by the federal uh, retirees here. In other words, Virginia's state retirees are outnumbered by citizens and voters who are federal retirees by about three to one. When you look at that number and you also consider, which is in the record and the affidavit and the legislative history, the disparity between the general size of federal retirement income and the size of state retirement income. You can do a rough estimate of what the value was of the benefit now found to be offending under Davis, and we don't dispute that. We quickly changed our law uh, immediately to conform with Davis. But that value of the benefit given during the four years in issue here is approximately 8 to $12 million. And we suggest that the penalty here that is being requested or demanding of a 100% refund, which for Virginia alone now is approximately $467 million, that no federal interest requires that. There is no federal interest uh, or underpinning in the intergovernmental tax immunity doctrine that would lead to that inequitable result. But are you suggesting, excuse me, are you suggesting the retroactivity rule would be different if the discrimination was, uh, say, against women instead of uh, one class of retirees and not another? Well, as you know, this was based principally on, on the statute, and it, it uh, was interpreted to be simply federal retirees versus I understand, but I'm, I'm not sure that answers my question. Yes. You're saying that on the, that really, for reasons I found very persuasive, there really wasn't discrimination here. But supposing it was discrimination against a class that we're particularly interested in protecting, say, say females, would you make the same remedial argument? Oh, I think, Your Honor, that that would be an equal protection claim. And I think that you would look to, uh, if you were looking under a federal rule, you would look to all the um, points which this Court has, has established as a very workable and fair rule in Chevron. Was it a new principle of law? Did everyone rely on its being? I, I believe... Yeah, but you're making those arguments. I'm just asking if your basic argument about remedy would be different 
if it were a different kind of discrimination, if it were constitutional discrimination against women rather than statutory discrimination against uh, some retirees and not the entire I think that goes to, Your Honor, to the foreseeability of it and the reliance interest. Even this court under Title VII has found it. It seems to me it's hard to argue foreseeability when eight members of the court are disagreed with you. Well, Your Honor, we had a very courtly dissent in that case, uh, as you know, and we suggest... uh, we suggest that what, uh, what was unforeseeable to the states, if it was foreseeable, we wonder, why did not any one of these petitioners come forward, and as they can, it doesn't cost any money, come forward and ask for a legal opinion by the highest legal officer of the state? If it was so foreseeable, at least since 1961, for example, or since McCulloch, why did not a single petitioner, the hundreds of thousands of them over the country who were in the same boat, they had every economic interest to come forward, not only for a refund, but taxpayers always have motivations to come forward to exonerate themselves from ongoing law. No one came forward. No one. Well, they came they claim that they didn't have to, and that, and that gets back ultimately to the argument of whether, indeed, uh, uh, your law required that they make that claim beforehand or allows them to do it afterwards. It, it all comes back to that, I suppose. They, they weren't behaving unreasonably if they thought, well... I don't, I don't say that they were behaving unreasonably, nor was the state, Your Honor, behaving unreasonably. We all found Davis and the fact that there was a legal edifice out there that cast its shadow in the direction of Davis. We found that um, um, that, that was a surprise, the discrimination of a general tax doing a legitimate government uh, purpose to benefit reti- state retirees. The fact that that was somehow discrimination was a surprise to all of us. We accept that now. But we also believe, Your Honor, that there is no personal compensable rights that these petitioners have suffered. I suggested to you, for example, that there were um, 200, uh, 2.5 million taxpayers and that the rough estimate of this now found to be offending benefit that the state gave to its own retirees was approximately $12 million a year. That comes to $5 per taxpayer per year. Well, then it won't be hard to refund it. (laughs) Pardon? (laughs) Your Honor, they've never asked for that refund. They've asked for a 100% refund, despite the fact that the refund is 10 times the amount of the offending benefit, and despite the fact that they, as a very small percentage of the 2.5 million, they did not fund the vast majority well, of this. They're asking for, for a refund that is disproportionate to the amount of the, the discrimination that, that was imposed? Your Honor, I don't think there was any discrimination based on the federal government, but that has been decided in Davis. Yes. And what they're asking for is a roughly 10 times the amount of what was now found to be the offending benefit that was given. And it was not funded by these 200,000 people. It was funded by the entire taxpaying public and corporate taxpayers who are amici here. Well, well why, do you, why do you say it's, how do you calculate that it's 10 times the amount of the... This is a rough estimate based, Your Honor, on the fact that there were very many fewer, there were very many fewer uh, state retirees in Virginia. Virginia state retirees are about 60,000. Federal retirees are about 200,000. In the record is also a differential of, uh, for example, in 1982, the average federal retiree in Virginia got $15,000 in income, and in, and the average state retiree got less than 5,000. But are, are the, uh, the, the class of uh, federal retirees, 
asking as refunds any more than they actually paid? They're asking for 100 percent tax exemption. And certainly the Intergovernmental Tax Immunity Doctrine never entitled them to an exemption. They have no personal harm, which is really being uh, well, but, but adre- redressed here. Virgi- Virginia, I suppose, has the choice after a case like Davis to say that we will uh, uh, withdraw the benefit we've given to state retirees and treat everybody equally. Or, but if you don't do that, then you've got to treat federal retirees like, like state retirees. Well, Your Honor, what I'm suggesting is that there is no federal interest that's being advanced by what really amounts to taking from these 2.5 million taxpayers a massive amount of what would otherwise be state assets available for construction of prisons and various services and transferring it to these 200,000 people. Whatever the intergovernmental tax immunity purpose was, I don't believe it was to give a personal benefit, unlike the Equal Protection Clause and the Sex Discrimination Clause, where the purpose, the federal purpose of the statute, and even in Commerce Clause, is to give a personal benefit to an individual. Ms. Marshall, you describe this as though it's a tort case, and as though what's at issue is how blameworthy was, was Virginia and how entitled to come. It's really not that. It's just a matter of, of, it's a simple federal statute that says these people were entitled, given your tax structure, to this amount of money. And they come in and they say, you took this money from us. You shouldn't have done it. Your Honor, the and, you statute. Know, end, of, end of problem. Uh, on, on, as far as this argument is concerned, now, now, now maybe they should have, prote- you know, made their protest earlier, but I don't, I don't see that this is a tort question. But Your Honor, let, let's go back to what is the remedial question. One thing that's very clear is that the plain language of Section 111 says nothing about remedy. It has no hint that it was intended to have any remedial prospect. That, therefore, we contend is not, and it's not what they base their claim on. They base their claim on 1826 of the Virginia Code. We suggest to Your Honor that... I don't know what you mean when you said it has no remedial... uh aspect to it. You mean it, it could, it, you, you think it could be disregarded by the states at will? And, Absolutely and, not, and Your Honor, and it was not. Once, once it was declared in Davis that there was an, a, an unexpected, and I think as J. Harvey Wilkinson, Judge Wilkinson said in the Fourth Circuit, a totally unexpected collision uh, between these federal statutes and what was thought to be a benign and modest state benefit. Once that was determined, Virginia uh, changed its law immediately. What I'm suggesting is that the Intergovernmental Tax Immunity Doctrine requires no more than that perspective change. This court has uh, cited recently Justice Harlan in the State of Donnelly case. Sometimes with the remedial phase, rescission is all that's required, well, not in your, money damage. In your position, then, if there had been a pre-deprivation uh, uh, proceeding brought, either uh, administratively in the first place or by declaratory judgment, it would have been appropriate, let's say, in the latter instance, for the court to say, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, you should not be assessed this tax, but the only obligation Virginia has now is to change its law, and therefore, uh, uh, under no circumstances can you yeah. get a penny back even though you win the case. Would that have been an appropriate resolution? At a minimum, you certainly changed the law, and that was appropriate. Well, I, I'm talking about not minimums but maximums. Would well, that have been uh, a, a proper application of federal law? It's a, it's a position of the tax department that we would be in. Well, now, I, excuse me. I don't want the position of the tax department as such. Would that have been a proper application of federal law? I do not believe so because there would have been no reliance then by the state 
In other words, they would have been put on notice that a some certain was under a cloud or a challenge of invalidity. No, but there would have been reliance, at least with respect to the period uh, for the for the tax year in question. They would have budgeted their, uh, they would have passed their state budget on the assumption that they were going to get this money. So they would have had reliance. In a declaratory judgment, though, we're talking about a prepayment remedy. What the mm-hmm. declaratory judgment would say, and what was said in Perkins is, we contend that this money that we have not yet paid, you cannot rely on that because we are putting you on notice that that money is under a claim of invalidity. And in that case, we believe the equities would not be the same, that there would have been a refund remedy if the time ran and they had to pay so for that declaratory in, judgment. But in, in the instance in which I gave, in which there was the declaratory judgment, following that declaratory judgment, uh, the commissioner or the state would have been under no obligation uh, to to do anything but go ahead and collect the tax uh, merely in hopes that the state legislature would change the law. No, Your Honor, I think that after the declaratory judgment, the tax collector, the tax commissioner would be obligated to follow the declaration of the law that it was an invalid tax and to withhold exaction or collection of the tax. Well, then the law, then, then the federal statute implies something other than prospective changes of the law as, as the appropriate form of relief, which I think is the proposition you would dispute. What I'm suggesting is that when you do not take a pre-deprivation route and when you do not base your claim for remedy, directly on a federal right, either in, through a 1983 or through any other injunctive action. For example, Phillips was an injunctive action. It was not a refund case. Well, they were at least claiming a federal right here. You don't dispute that. They were not basing their claim. Their, if you look at their complaint, we say it is based solely on a refund statute. Which well, it was based on a refund statute, but their predicate for claiming the refund was the claim of a federal right. Isn't that correct? Your Honor, they used the Davis decision in order to try to establish that the plain language of the refund remedy statute applied, i.e., that it was improper uh, or erroneous. I, I don't think we're getting anywhere. So, Your Honors, I would suggest that as a result of the law-changing decision that this Court made in March of 1981, uh, that this Court should affirm Thank the decision you, below. Ms. Marshall. Uh, Mr. Cater, you have ten minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. At the outset, let me clarify the issue of whether Virginia has a declaratory judgment statute that would reach this kind of claim. They don't. Uh, in fact, Virginia has a statute in its books that states that you may not file a declaratory judgment for income taxes, and there's quite a bit of case law that says you may not do so. Let me also address the issue of whether or not we raised a federal claim in each. How can there be such such diametric opposition on such a fundamental point? Uh, you, you have cases that. Uh, I, we, I believe we did. We may have cited the cases in our in our earlier papers in this court. This has not been an issue until the, this morning. Uh, but uh, my recollection from three years ago when I was looking at this is yes, indeed, Virginia has a statute that says you may not uh, file a declaratory judgment, and I am certain that there's case law. For one of the things that we thought about doing was trying to enjoin the imposition of the 1988 taxes, which were not due until May 1, 1989, and we found that we couldn't do it. Uh, and I, I regret that I don't have that authority in front of me, but I, I, I submit that could, it would be very could, easy. Could to you find. provide it, please? I'd, 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 I'd be I'd delighted to your answer. Uh, the second point is the uh, the history of the 14th Amendment claim, if you will. In each of our complaints in this case, and several were, were consolidated. 
in each of the complaints, there was a claim that uh, under statement of claims, and Virginia is a notice pleading state, during the years since 1985, plaintiffs have paid excessive taxes which have been unconstitutionally and illegally exacted. And the relief requested was a judgment uh, uh, for the refund of all unconstitutionally assessed and collected taxes. I don't understand how Virginia uh, can state that there is no constitutional claim alleged in these papers. There certainly is. They, they suggest that we didn't put in our petition, our, our points of error, it's called. Well, I think there, there, there are two different constitutional violations at issue here, aren't there? One is a violation of the Supremacy Clause, and I take that to be referring to a violation of the Supremacy Clause. The other is a violation of the Takings Clause or, or the Due Process Clause in not giving you your, your money. I think, and I think they're saying you didn't make that claim until until. To now. be fair, Your Honor, we didn't contemplate at the time that we filed our complaint. Uh, I think that was before McKesson came down. I don't believe that we were addressing that. But we moved for partial summary judgment on the refund statute. Uh, if we have to go back and move for partial summary judgment on the Constitution, I believe it's fairly pled within the complaint. Uh, but. The other, the points of error, the circuit court for Alexandria, where this case came from, issued its opinion, and that's the opinion we appeal to the Supreme Court of Virginia, solely on retroactivity of Davis. The issue that is raised here was raised for the first time by the Attorney General in the Supreme Court of Virginia, and, and that was a point that we raised in our reply brief. Said, Why are you raising this point here? And the reason they were raising that point there, and then at that time, was because that was after the Supreme Court of South Carolina, in its Bass case, said, wait, we've got a better idea. We'll change our refund statute and say it doesn't apply. And that's exactly what Virginia, the Attorney General, is trying to convince its court to do. And to its credit, the Supreme Court of Virginia has not, at least yet, gone and changed its refund statute. Another point that I think bears emphasis, if it were so clear and certain that petitioners had no remedy under the refund statute, why did the Virginia General Assembly amend the statute to extend the statute of limitations for petitioners to file their claims solely and expressly for the purpose of allowing retroactivity of Davis to be resolved? Certainly the legislature of Virginia thought the refund statute applied, and perhaps in retrospect, maybe Virginia's right, it didn't apply, but it must now because the, Supreme, the, the legislature of Virginia has amended it to say so. Are you going to comment on uh, Perkins and Capehart? Perkins and Capehart, Your Honor, first of all, uh, those are what we would call modified prospectivity cases. In both, in Perkins, the uh, taxpayer said your particular method of assessment is unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court of Virginia said you're right, we'll give you a, the remedy that you've asked for, and uh, in Capehart, but we're going to apply that prospectively only. And then in Capehart, when somebody else in another county tried to do it, the Supreme Court of Virginia said, no, we, we said in Perkins, prospective only, and that's what we meant. The Supreme Court of Virginia in this case, uh, and this is at 15A of, our, of the cert petition, says, Harper's state law contention also fails for another reason. We previously have held that this court's ruling declaring a taxing scheme unconstitutional is to be applied prospectively only. This is Virginia's state law prospectivity doctrine, and it's simply inapposite in a federal question, in a case involving a, a, a federal retroactivity. What, what, what the state says, they may be right or wrong, is that the post 
uh, deprivation remedy is more limited than, than the pre-deprivation remedy. And that so long as the pre-deprivation remedy is full, they are not required to give you a full post-deprivation remedy. Your Honor, and I think that that is an accurate statement of McKesson, that if, in fact, uh, they have a full pre-deprivation remedy, they can have no post-deprivation remedy. But the critical point here is what McKesson's requirement is, is a clear and certain remedy. And it was anything but clear and certain, and even after this morning I submit, that Virginia's post-deprivation remedy doesn't apply to this. If Virginia wants to change its rules and say that its post-deprivation statute doesn't apply, uh, and there are people who have obtained refunds of unconstitutional taxes under that statute. That's not quite fair. What, What has to be clear and certain is the availability of the pre-deprivation remedy, not the non-availability of the post-deprivation remedy. Your Honor, I would submit that what must be what must be clear and certain is the bundle of routes available to challenge the tax. And and this brings us back into Brinkerhoff-Ferris. They simply can't say you have two of statutes, two means to challenge it available to you, both uh, adequate. One is an adequate pre-deprivation remedy, which. Don't misunderstand me. We dispute that there's an adequate pre-deprivation remedy. But they can't say, you've got two routes, and therefore, since you have two, we're going to cut one off. That is unconstitutional. That the 14th Amendment prohibits. And that is what I believe Virginia is arguing that its court should do. I I don't think that it's arguing. I think Virginia is arguing that its court has done that. Well, I don't think that that can fairly be read from the Supreme Court's opinion. I I, I realize that, but I I just thought uh, that was what the state is arguing. Okay. Okay. Not not that they should do it now, but that they have already done it. Correct, Your Honor. And my point is I don't think that it, it it can be seen from that. I think it also bears emphasis that when this case was originally brought in the Eastern District of Virginia, the, Supreme, uh, the Virginia Attorney General pled the existence of the refund statute as a plain, speedy, and efficient remedy. And I don't think the significance of that should be lost on the court. The bottom line, as we see it, Your Honor, is McKesson's requirement for a clear and certain remedy. I don't think there's any real dispute that Davis must be applied retroactively. That being so, there must be a clear and certain remedy. What we ask this court to do is no more than say that it meant what it said in Davis, that it meant what it said in Beam, and that it meant what it said in McKesson. And on that basis, to reverse the decision below. May I ask you one last question before you sit down? The second part of the Virginia Supreme Court opinion seems to me to be responding to this argument that you made, and tell me if I'm right on, on your presentation. Did you argue that even if it's not retroactive as a matter of federal law, it is in any event retroactive as a matter of state law? And they said no to that. The argument was... Uh, my argument was, your refund statute says erroneous and illegal. That's the legislature's conclusion of how it wants to gauge this, and therefore you can't play the retroactivity game. This is essentially the argument that was accepted by the Supreme Court of Missouri and Hackman. And rejecting that, the, uh, the Supreme Court of Virginia said, no, the retroactivity of Davis comes first. And therefore, because we find that Davis is not retroactive, uh, it's not erroneous and illegal. And moreover, just so you know, we've done this before. That's essentially what their state law holding was. If there are no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Cater. The case is submitted.